now can you hear me? Yeah, you can? John, at the back, can you hear me? Who take? No. Is the speaker on at the back? Uh, is the speaker on at the back? It's okay, I, I'll need to have my loud voice on. <laughs> okay, let me, uh, let, me, let, let me pray and uh, we can all pray together to God to help us to understand today's passage. Dear loving Heavenly Father, as we come before you today, this is a very difficult passage with uh, many major implications in our life and we just really pray that you help us to come before you uh, with a great deal of humility to come and uh, to acknowledge to you that it is hard to understand and even harder to apply and we pray that you will help us through the Holy Spirit to apply it and to live it out and we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, uh, I presume here, uh, everyone here likes to be liked. That's true, isn't it? Uh, anybody not like being liked? No, I think everybody wants to be liked. But I think that being liked uh, can be a very dangerous thing for a pastor. Because if a pastor uh, has an overwhelming desire to be liked by people, then the great danger is that uh, he will only preach or what people want to hear because he wants to hear the praise of people. And I, I think that's why it's really good that uh, we should always preach expository preaching in churches. Uh, expository preaching is where we go chapter by chapter by chapter through a book. Because today we come to Mark chapter 10. And in all honesty, uh, very few people actually preach on Mark chapter 10, especially verse 1 to 12. In fact, my whole lifetime as a Christian, I've been to an Anglican church, Presbyterian church, I grew up in Methodist church. We never preach, I've never heard a sermon preached on Mark chapter 10, verse 1 to 12. And I think the great danger for me as a preacher is when I preach, I think, you know, wow, you know, this is really heavy stuff. I might offend someone. I might get in hot water by preaching this passage. But I think that uh, that's the good thing about expository preaching because it forces you to tackle the difficult things that God says in His Word. And I think the Holy Spirit really prompted me to say, okay, let's take this passage instead of starting from verse 13. Okay, so what is this passage saying? So let's start from the very beginning because uh, it's got lots of very heavy things that this passage says to us. So in verse uh, 1, Jesus left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, the crowds came to him and as was his custom, he taught them. Now, what was happening here is that Jesus, as we move from chapter 1 to 8, he's, he's emphasizing a lot more on teaching. Uh, people have great needs. People are still sick. People are still demon-possessed. People still want to see the miracles of God. But Jesus sees that the greater need of the people is to be taught. And I think that's a very important principle for us because when we come to church, we are actually doing what Jesus wants us to do. We are being taught by God's Word. We read the Bible, we do Bible study. But essentially, as we look at this passage, the question that we have to ask ourselves is, what was Jesus teaching? It doesn't tell us what Jesus is teaching. But I think that if you look at chapter 9, chapter 9, the last passage in chapter 9, verse 42 to 50, he was teaching about the entry into the kingdom of God. The entry into the kingdom of God. And you can see in chapter 10 as well, the main principal thing that Jesus was talking about was what? Entry into the kingdom of God. Okay, now he's talking about the kingdom of God when these Pharisees come up to him and they ask him a question. Verse 2 Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, this was not a serious question. They were not serious and sincere, genuine questioners because they wanted to test Jesus. In fact, the Pharisees already knew 
what the answer was to their question. And that's why Jesus says, what does Moses command you? And they could reply in verse 4, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And they saw that uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 24, which is up here. Oh, sorry, I didn't give you the reference, right? This is Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. And they said, okay, we know that, that a man or a woman can be divorced because Deuteronomy chapter 24, Moses said, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her away from the house, blah, 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 she can be divorced. Now, Obviously, the Pharisees, from their point of view, knew that the answer was yes. The answer was, God does allow divorce. The only question for the Pharisees was, what is this thing called something indecent? What is the grounds of divorce? What reason is there in the Old Testament for people to be divorced? And they had very different interpretations of what it meant to be something indecent. Uh, some very liberal, uh, the widest interpretation was by, by these people called Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Akiba, who basically said that if your wife burnt your meat, you could divorce your wife. Or if your wife put too much salt in your soup, you could divorce your wife. Or if your wife embarrassed you in front of your parents, you could also divorce your wife. And on the other hand, you have some other people like this Rabbi Shammai, who was very strict, who said, you know, the sole grounds of divorce would be something very, very serious. But what does Jesus say? Well, Jesus says in verse 5, right? It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. And what he was basically saying was, God did not command, did not command them to divorce. But if you look up in the next slide, right? The next slide is basically the same verse, but I highlighted the if, right? God allows a, a concession, an allowance for people because of their hardness of heart, to receive a divorce. And what was happening was, the Pharisees saw Deuteronomy 24 as a command for divorce, but Jesus says, that's wrong, 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 wrong. Deuteronomy 24 is a concession, it's an allowance, because people were sinful, people were hard of heart. And the certificate of divorce was actually given to protect the woman. Because if the woman was not given a certificate of divorce, then she couldn't remarry. If she remarried, she'd be accused of adultery. And without remarriage in those days, in those olden days, the woman would be very vulnerable. She wouldn't have a man to protect her. To, uh, she wouldn't have children to provide for her old age. And that's why God had provided a certificate of divorce. But in God's original intention, God did not want divorce. In fact, God hates divorce, right? And that's what Jesus is saying in verse 6 onwards. But at the very beginning, at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Okay, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. So they're no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. And God has two intentions for marriage, according to Jesus' words here. The two intentions are unity and permanence. Unity and permanence. They are meant to come together to become one flesh. They are united in a way which 
brings that relationship above every other relationship. So, the closest relationship that a person could have is, I guess, between a parent and a child. But when the child marries, that, that relationship is so strong that it supersedes the parent-child relationship. There is unity, one flesh, one flesh. But also, there is permanence, isn't it? Because Jesus says, Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Therefore, this unity, this one flesh, should not be divided by man. Because God wants them to be together. They are already one flesh. Now, if God hates divorce, it was a very difficult word in their day. Now, we often think, you know, the Jewish people... You know, maybe they are very different from what we are today. You know, like nowadays, divorce is very common. But when you look at this conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees, you sort of get the idea that actually divorce is not all that unknown during those times as well, isn't it? Because the disciples are a bit shocked by what Jesus says. You notice in verse 10, they are, they, you know, the disciples, when they are a bit shocked by what Jesus says, they often ask Jesus to clarify what he says. And in verse 10, when they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. They were confused by what Jesus said. Jesus answered, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. So what Jesus is saying here is God hates divorce. He said it to the Pharisees. He said it to... Uh, the disciples. Now, this is a hard word by Jesus. It is not hard because it's hard to understand, but it's hard to accept. Uh, Because we live in a world where divorce is actually quite common. It's very common. Uh, I went to the internet and looked up some statistics. And apparently, over the last 10 years, the divorce rate in Singapore has doubled. Almost doubled. And since 2003, apparently... For every 10 marriages registered in Singapore, almost 3 will end up in divorce. And in the, the, apparently the places, the highest places of divorce are in Sweden and in America where for every, uh, the divorce rate is 50%, more than 50%, I think 54 to 56%, right? Of all marriages will end up in divorce. And the great problem for us is the attitude of the world is now infecting the church in America, and I think in many ways in church in Singapore as well. Because I know Christians who go to churches who seriously consider divorce or get divorced for reasons such as uh, couples feel that their, their careers are bringing them apart. Or they feel that they are moving in different directions. Or they feel that they are not fulfilled in the marriage anymore. They are not happy in the marriage. Uh, people want to get divorced because they feel that their husband doesn't do a good job in investing the money. So all these reasons are seen to be good reasons for divorce. And these are Christians. These are Christians. Now, the problem is the world says that the reason for marriage is fulfillment and happiness. But God actually says marriage is not about just fulfillment and happiness. It is beyond that, isn't it? It's once you've decided to become married, you're one flesh. It is permanent. You cannot leave marriage just because you do not feel fulfilled anymore or you do not feel happy anymore. Because Jesus' words are very strong, isn't it? If you do that, it is adultery. 
It is adultery. You remarry again, it is adultery. Therefore, I like what this pastor, this Ken Hughes said, more important than self-fulfillment, more important than your own happiness is the obedience to God's word. God hates divorce. God says that there are really only uh, two legitimate concessions or allowances for divorce in Jesus' words, right, in the, in the New Testament. So up here, if you have a look, um, you'll see where Jesus says in a similar passage in Matthew chapter 9, 19, verse 9, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. Okay, so the first reason is if there is marital unfaithfulness. Not your marital unfaithfulness, but your partner's marital unfaithfulness. That means you are the innocent party. Okay, it is, you know, some people misunderstand this passage. They say, well, if I go and have an affair with someone, there's marital unfaithfulness, so I can, I can divorce my wife and go and marry the person I had an affair with. Okay, now that's completely the wrong understanding of this passage, right? It is the innocent party who is sinned against. This person can go and marry someone else without uh, sin. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, there is another concession that God makes. It is where a couple, a married couple, who are non-believers, one member of the family becomes a Christian, and as a result, that one member of the family or the spouse becoming a Christian, the other spouse wants to leave, then, it says there, in verse 15, if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. So there are two concessions, two allowances. One is if you are a victim of someone's sin, in a sexual sense, as marital unfaithfulness. The second reason is if you have become a Christian and your partner decides to leave. Now I want you to notice in these two verses, these two sections, is that there is no command for you to get divorced. I've counseled couples where there has been marital unfaithfulness and the spouse forgives the guilty party and they go on to have a very uh, fulfilling a long-term marriage uh, even though there's been marital unfaithfulness. Now obviously, it might be very difficult, right? If you're Tiger Woods, okay, where there is serial marital unfaithfulness, where trust is really, really broken. But in a sense, I always counsel people, if there is marital unfaithfulness, and you know, if at all possible, you should continue to try to work at the marriage. Uh, again, uh, where believers have actually become believers in a marriage, uh, again, I've also seen many uh, good marriages continue as a result. Now, this is a hard passage, and I think that there are four groups of people in church who this passage can actually apply to. All right? And you might ask yourself, why am I talking so fast? Right? I've got a lot to go through, so that's why. But there are four groups of people that this passage speaks to. The first group, I think, is that there are people sitting here today who are happily married. You can put it in your hands if you want. Okay, who are the people who are happily married? Okay, you don't have to. Okay, the happily married people are sitting here thinking, well, this passage doesn't really apply to me. I'm very happily married. No, I don't think of divorce. Uh, you know, okay, I can go to sleep now, right? Mark chapter 10, 1 to 12, what is Jesus talking about? But I think that this passage is helpful for those who are happily married in the sense that they should not see people who are divorced 
who are struggling with marriage, that to see that somehow they are they have this terrible disease, you know, uh, that uh, they have, they're struggling with, or that they've committed some terrible sin because they have been divorced. You see, Deuteronomy chapter 24 was actually designed by God to protect the weak, to protect those who are innocent, to protect those who have been sinned against, for whom the hard-heartedness of one spouse had hurt the other. And therefore, I remember reading some articles before right, about how uh, in America, some people who are divorced find it very hard to feel welcome in church because the married couples look at them and say, you know, you must have done something wrong. But actually, when you look at this passage, the concession that God gave was to protect those who have been sinned against. The innocent party of the divorce. And I think that in church, just because someone is divorced or struggling in marriage, we should support them, we should love them, especially if they are the innocent party. Right? Because they are the ones who need love. They are the ones who are the weak. They are the ones who we need to actually minister to. Now the other group, the second group uh, in this church, may be people who are struggling in marriage. People for whom marriage is tough. Marriage is difficult. Uh, where maybe you haven't spoken about divorce, but you know, you, it's, it's not a bit of roses. Like, okay? Marriage is not a bit of roses for you. Well, I think that this passage also has something to say to you. I think that it is a show that you must keep working at the marriage. Keep striving at the marriage. Don't give up. Don't divorce. Don't be like the world which sort of says, you know, when marriage gets tough, it's time to drop out. You know, because at the end of the day, God hates divorce. He doesn't please God for, for people to get divorced. It is not something which God commands. It is not something which is good in God's eyes. Now, my wife was telling me that uh, uh, she goes to BSF. Uh, you know BSF Bible Study Fellowship? And sometimes women come to BSF and they struggle in marriage. And they share their struggles in marriage. But as they keep coming week after week for many weeks, for years on end, they find that actually they don't complain about their marriage anymore. And it's not as if the circumstances of their marriage has changed. The marriage is still difficult. But it's they themselves that have changed. They have become more tolerant. They have become more loving. They have become more patient. Uh, like this pastor, Dudley Ford said, We pray to God, God change my marriage, help my marriage. But begin with me. Right, begin with me. Help me to be more loving. Help me to be more sensitive, help me to be more encouraging. Because the fact is, you can be a godly, committed Christian and still have a struggling marriage. We should not believe the lies of people who say that when you are a Christian, everything is easy, everything is great, or everything is a bit of roses. No, that's not the case. In my theological college, when I was studying there, I knew a theological lecturers who struggle in their marriage. Being godly doesn't mean that you have a great marriage. You can still struggle in marriage. But don't give up. Now, uh, the third group, I think, is people who have been divorced. And I think that uh, divorce is a very painful thing. Statistically, divorce is one of the most stressful things that you can go through in life. Right? It's, the most, 
there's painful, there's heartache, there's sorrow involved. But you should not feel that if you're the innocent party of divorce, that somehow you are not worthy of God. That you are not, that you know you've done some unpardonable, unforgivable sin. God still loves you if you're the innocent party. Now the question that some people have is, are you allowed to remarry after you get divorced? Uh, I have this book. Uh, actually, it's my bag. I should have brought it out here. I didn't bring it up. But I have this book, which you know has all these questions. You know, okay, you can re- divorce lah, but if you're divorced, can you remarry? It's like you know, it's a lot of questions, right? Pages and pages of notes. But I think that misses the point. You see, Deuteronomy chapter twenty-four, the certificate of divorce was given so that the party who was divorced could get remarried. I think in those days, people who were divorced, the majority of them would get remarried. That was what was expected. So I think if you're the innocent party of, uh, of in a divorce, you can get remarried. I think that the Bible allows you to get remarried. Okay, so I've spoken to the married, happily married, what else? Unhappily married and the divorce. Okay, the last group of people. The single people. Okay, I think that's about it, right? Nobody else, right? The single people. I think that the single people, this passage also has a message. The message is, choose wisely. Choose wisely. Right? How do you choose a marriage partner? You choose a marriage partner, by what criteria? Is it because they're good looking? Cute, right? Is it because they have a good sense of humor? They're funny, make you laugh? Do you choose a marriage partner because they are sexy? Good appearance? Well, all these married people can tell you all these things disappear, right? After you get married. What really counts is, does this person take God seriously? Does this person take God's word seriously? Does this person take God's word on marriage seriously? Does this person see that marriage is to be lived God's way. Where you love one another till death do us part. Because, you know, like uh, this guy, Dali Ford said, marriage, the godly marriage, is made of three people. Okay, three people. It is the man, the woman, and God. And when you go for marriage counselling, if you say to, to me, who do you love the most? You say, oh, my spouse, right? Or my spouse-to-be. Then the answer is wrong, right? Okay? The person you love most is God, isn't it? You love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. But it is through loving God, it is through loving Jesus that you love your spouse. That is the glue that holds the marriage together, that creates permanence in that marriage. Because when you say, I love God and I take God's word seriously, I will take my marriage seriously. It will be the blueprint of how I act in my marriage. So, in every way, right, this is a hard word, but it also is what God wants for us, because He hates divorce. Now, I spent a long time on verse 1 to 12, <coughs> and I, uh, you know, we've been talking about divorce, but it's a very important thing, but I don't think that's the main issue, you know, of this passage. Jesus didn't bring up this topic of divorce. It was the Pharisees who brought up this topic of divorce. And when I struggle with this passage, I think, how does this link with the whole section, right? How does 
the divorce linked with the little children, the rich young men, and what comes before. I think what links is the fact that it's all about the kingdom of God. I think for us, we're a bit blind to it, you see, because uh, we see divorce and we think, oh, divorce, divorce. You know, it sticks out like this big red flashing light. But actually, it's not just about divorce, it's about the kingdom of God. You see, the Pharisees were the most religious group in, uh, in Judaism and Israel. They believed in the law, they kept the law, they examined the law, they studied the law, they did everything in the law. And they believed that if you wanted to get into the kingdom of God, you went through the law. That was the way you went into the kingdom of God. But I think what Jesus is trying to show here is you cannot get into the kingdom of God through the law because even keeping the law doesn't solve the problem of hard-heartedness. Can you see that? You can be a Pharisee and be legalistic and keep the law, but you are still hard-hearted. And that was what Jesus is trying to show here, that the Pharisees in spite of all their education, in spite of all their obedience, they still could not solve the problem of hard-heartedness. And that was, that was what was going to stop them from getting into the kingdom of God. Because people thought, if anybody was going to get into the kingdom of God, it was the Pharisees. But it is not the case, because it doesn't solve hard-heartedness. It doesn't solve sin in their lives. People still got divorced. People still, by being legalistic, thought they were pleasing to God, but they were not. But in verse 13 and 16, we see another different group of people, right? These, these children were being brought to Jesus, in verse 13, but the disciples rebuked them. Verse 14, when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. Now the word indignant here, literally means he was very, very angry. He was very angry. Now why was Jesus angry? Is it because... Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. Uh, red and red and white and yellow and white. Is it red and yellow, black and white? He loves the children of the world. Is that why he was indignant? Is it because you know he's a he really loves children? I think he was indignant because the disciples did not understand the entry into the kingdom of God. They did not understand what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. So you imagine, right? Pharisee, uh, okay, la, come and see Jesus. Hey, 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 talk to Jesus here, right? Rich young man, sure, come, 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 come. Speak to Jesus. But little children, uh, yeah, guys, can you give us a break? You know, right? Jesus is busy. Can't you see he's busy? He's busy, all the Pharisees and the rich people. Leave us alone, right? And that's why Jesus was indignant. Because the disciples have the world's values and say, okay, you know, Pharisees, they're important people. We'll put you down. You got an appointment. Rich young man, sure, you're there. But little children, sorry, no time for you, right? But Jesus actually says that the kingdom of God belongs to these little children. That's what he says. And uh, verse 14. Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Now what does he mean? What is it about the little children that allows them to go into the kingdom of God? Should we start acting like children? What does it mean to act like a child? Should we start throwing tantrums, eating you know, messy way? What does it mean? 
What is it about the little children? Is it because they're very cute, very innocent? No, I think what he's trying to say is the little children come into the kingdom of God because they are nobodies. They are nobodies. They've never acquired anything. They've never done anything. They come to Jesus with absolute dependence on Jesus. They've got nothing to give to Jesus. They come with empty hands, right? They can only receive from Jesus. They cannot do anything to earn anything from Jesus. They are helpless before Jesus. And that's why they can come into the kingdom of God because they do not try to be like the Pharisees to do something to get into the kingdom. But instead, they come to Jesus and they say, Look, we've got nothing. We are nobodies. And therefore, they can come in. Now, again, contrasted with the Pharisees and the little children, is this guy, the rich young man. And this rich young man has a lot to admire about. I really think so. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. And and good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Everything about this man is very, very impressive. Verse 22, he was very wealthy, isn't it? Oh, sorry, verse 22, yeah, he's a man of great wealth. He was young and fit, right? He says he was running. He wasn't uh, ambling along or stumbling there. He ran to Jesus. But yet, this rich young man, he fell on his knees before Jesus. And not did he fall on his knees on Jesus, he asked a really good question. Usually young people who are very rich will not be thinking about eternal life, but this man was thinking about eternal life. And he falls before Jesus and he asks him this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, for all that is admirable about this uh, rich young man, uh, and I think Jesus actually loves this uh, young man, he, he, he sees his sincerity, Jesus gives him a very cryptic answer. Verse 18 uh, is a very strange answer and you have to really think it through, right? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. Now, for the many pages of commentary that people write about this, I think the point of this question I think is pretty clear. You see, this man asked a question with a certain overconfidence, I think, a certain easiness in the attitude of this man. Uh, he asked Jesus a question which he thinks Jesus can solve, can give him. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? I have to do something. Right? And Jesus tries to say to him, look, only God is good. You want to you figure out how to get in? You have to measure yourself against the goodness of God. And I like what this uh, Pastor Dick Lucas said. He said, the goodness of this man, our goodness, compared to God's goodness, is like a candle compared to the noonday sun. Okay, imagine how bright the noonday sun is and how bright a candle is. He says, that's our goodness compared to God. And I think that's what Jesus is trying to point out to this guy. See, this young man thinks... He's got certain overconfidence. I I know I can do something. If I only could do that one thing, I could go into the kingdom of God. But Jesus says, no. When you think about it, the goodness of God is so great, there is nothing you can do to get into the kingdom of God. The question you ask is a human impossibility. There is nothing you can do. There is no goodness that is good enough for you to impress God to get into the kingdom of God. 
The problem in verse 19 is, in verse 19 onwards, is the young man still doesn't measure his goodness in terms of God's goodness. He measures it the way the Pharisees do. Jesus says to this man, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And what does this man say? Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. How can he answer that way? He can only answer this way because he's thinking like the Pharisees. He's thinking about external obedience. When you look at that passage, I guess most of us can actually say that we have kept those laws. I can only say I haven't murdered anybody in my life. Anybody here murdered someone? I haven't physically strangled someone or stabbed someone or shot someone. Okay? Tick. I haven't murdered. I haven't committed adultery. You know, I haven't stabbed someone. I haven't stolen. I haven't yep, defrauded. Honor. Yep. Okay, I've done all those things. right? Externally, I've kept all those things. And that's what this young man is thinking. I've kept all those things. Yes, Jesus. What else is there for me to do? He still doesn't understand that the measurement is not the external obedience of the law, but God's goodness. Therefore, this man is still looking at things just like the Pharisees. So what does Jesus do to get him out of his comfort zone? Because he is in a comfort zone right now, right? He thinks, okay, I just need to do one last thing. What else do I have to do? So Jesus says to him, Jesus looked at him, he loved him, and he genuinely loved him, right? Because he was very earnest and sincere. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, then come and follow me. That's again another hard word from Jesus. Does this mean that all of us should sell all we have and give to the poor? Is that, is that what was the secret? Is that the last thing that the rich young man had to do? To sell all his goods and then he would be able to get into heaven? No, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying, right? Because again, that would be doing something. If he could do this, the giving out of his goods, if he could do the giving to the poor, the charity, then he would go to heaven. No, that's not what Jesus is saying at all. What Jesus is saying is that his money was actually his obstacle to following Jesus. His money, his wealth, was actually what was stopping him becoming like the little child. Because that is the problem, isn't it? The problem of this rich young man is that his faith was not in God or in trusting God like a little child, helpless and weak and dependent, but he was, he was self-reliant. He depended upon his great wealth. See, his hands were so full that he could not receive eternal life. And I think there's a wonderful uh, illustration that someone said, that actually money makes a wonderful God. It's like a Trinitarian God, uh, this Dick Lucas said. Right? See, money is like uh, God, the, the Father, the God, the Father, the Maker. right? But money can make us, right? We are self-made people. The money makes us who we are. Where we live, what car we drive. It is like a God to us. It makes us. Money can be like Jesus, a redeemer God. It saves us from trouble. Whenever we are in trouble, we use money to save us, to bail us out. Money can be like the Holy Spirit. It can comfort us. Whenever we are disturbed or difficult times, we can use money to make us feel better. And what was happening was Jesus was trying to show this man that money was actually his wealth, his great wealth was what was stopping him from trusting in God and following Jesus. And verse 22 is one of the most tragic verses 
in the whole Bible, isn't it? Because at this, the man's face fell. This sincere, earnest man who really genuinely wanted eternal life, his face fell because he realized actually his money was more important than eternal life. He went away sad because he had great wealth. And uh, again, the disciples, when they don't understand or they're troubled, they uh, will continue the conversation, right? So you can imagine the man walking off and the disciples talking to Jesus. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. And when you think about it, it is quite an impossible picture. See, what is the biggest animal that you can conceptualize in Asia? Probably the elephant, right? I think that's the biggest animal. Uh. In uh, the Middle East, the biggest animal is the camel. Okay, No elephants in the desert. So the biggest animal, camel, smallest opening, eye of a needle. I don't think it's a smaller opening than eye of a needle, right? So it says, get the biggest animal you can find and fit it through the smallest opening. It is impossible. Impossible. And I think Jesus is not just saying this about the rich man. He's saying that for the powerful person, this is impossible. For the good person, this is impossible. For the religious person, it's impossible. He's basically saying you can be a rich camel, a powerful camel, a religious camel that goes to church, but if you think that you are going to do something to get into the kingdom of God by your own works, it is like fitting a camel through an eye of a leader. And this passage is actually a parallel to verse 15. right? So you look up here again. Right? So, how do you get into the kingdom of God? Not by doing things, not by earning things, not by status or achievement, but by being nothing before God. Coming before God, Jesus says, I've got nothing to give you. I'm a worthless sinner. I'm a you know, terrible. Only you, through your grace, can bring me into the kingdom of God. Now, how then... Do we end this passage? I think we end this passage by the end of chapter 10, isn't it? We're not going to go all the way through and uh, look at the rest of it, but I think Bartimaeus is a picture of someone who is like a little child in his life. So turn to me to verse 47 to 48, and we'll end there. Verse 47 to 48. And look at Bartimaeus compared to the Pharisee, compared to the rich man. So Bartimaeus, when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. And he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Well, that is what it means to be a little child before God. It is to call out to God, Son of David, Jesus, have mercy on me. doesn't matter how rich you are. doesn't matter how religious you are doesn't matter how good you are, doesn't matter how, you know, what, what status you have in this life, we still, all of us need to go before God on our knees and cry out to God, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Because only then are we like little children and only then will we be able to receive the kingdom of God. See, notice the difference? 
You receive the kingdom of God. You do not do anything to get into the kingdom of God. You receive it. To receive it, you must come to Him with nothing. So truly, we can only come to Jesus and say, have mercy on me. Let's bow our heads and go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, help us to see that the kingdom of God, that heaven, cannot be earned, cannot be done, it cannot be achieved, but it all can only be received. That dear Father, help us to see you as you truly are, that your goodness, your goodness is so beyond our understanding, that our goodness is nothing, is nothing before you. It is tainted and corrupted, that it is like garbage to your goodness. Help us, each and every one of us, to throw aside every obstacle in our life which makes us self-sufficient, which makes us independent, which makes us feel that we are something before you. And to see that before you we are nothing. That we can only come before you and cry out to you for mercy and say, Dear Father, have mercy on us. And only then will we have confidence to know that through Jesus, we will receive the kingdom of God. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.